Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Refugee camps, detention camps, displacement camps, repatriation camps, people being greeted with xenophobia and sometimes with helping and open arms. Many of the discussions focus on the politics and other reasons that people migrate. But these are still people with the full gamut of human needs. Paul Hart is a Florida physician who has volunteered in such refugee camps. He graciously agreed to join us today to tell us what it was like for the refugees and for him in those camps. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with a brief overview. The last camp I guess you were in was the Greek Moriah camp. Can you give us a little history? Sure. This is a camp that originally was a, I understand, a military base. And then as the refugees started to pour into Greece, which was around the end of 2014 into 2015, it was switched over to a refugee camp. It's on the island of Lesbos, and the reason it's there is Lesbos is about four miles by sea from Turkey. And the entrance to the European Union for a lot of the refugees is through Greece. And once they get to Turkey, it is only a short trip across the water, if they make it successfully, to enter Greece. And from Greece, if they are approved, the EU is open to them for a place to go to. How big a camp is it? The camp itself physically houses up to 10,000 people. It is fenced in around the entire camp. I don't know the physical structure of it. It must be a mile long or a mile square. Interestingly enough, you go on Google Maps and you go to where the camp is, it's all whited out. The scenery you can see, but it's just a big whited out area. And immediately outside the camp, which is on somewhat of a hilly area dotted with olive trees, there is a second series of tents, which are not technically part of the camp, but once the camp filled up, people set up their own tents there so they are close to the, the camp and can get advantage of some of what is offered in the camp. It is not well placed on the island, so if you went to Lesbos, which has been traditionally a vacation island, most people don't even know it's there. You can't see it. Although the residents of the island who initially welcomed the refugees have now turned 180 degrees because they feel that because of the refugee camp, people are not coming to vacation as they did before. And it's made it more difficult for the refugees. This not only includes the locals who live near the camp, but the people in Mytilene, which is the main city on the island, where they have the physicians and hospital, etc. So that, that, that's sort of the, the setup. The camp itself, once you get through security, it used to be, I believe, that anybody could go into the camp. Now they have strict security, and only with a pass can you get into the camp. They have guards there. There is somebody almost 24 hours a day who watches the entrance of coming and going. The residents of the camp are not confined to the camp. They can leave and come and go as they want. Many of them will take a bus into Medellini, which costs them one euro. If they don't have enough money, they walk the six kilometers from the camp into Medellini because they could do some shopping there. When I first went to the camp, the group that I went with had not transferred my ID to the guards, and I was turned away. I had to call the group, and then they came and brought me in. After that, I was issued a pass, and I could come and go. 
what did you see when you were there as a physician? What was your reaction? And again, this was not your first such experience, so I, I guess in some respects you had a little bit of expectation. But what was your reaction when you walked in? One, that it, how crowded it was. This camp initially was meant for 3,000 people. It peaked at 10,000 and now is about seven, although nobody is exactly sure the number of people who are in the camp at any one time. There is tremendous crowding. For a bathroom, it would serve 70 or 80 people. The lines to get food for the refugees, it used to be they waited eight hours per meal, which means they were basically standing most of the day just to get food. Now it's down to three hours, or it was when I was there. An improvement, but still totally not acceptable. And the food is provided, interestingly enough, by the Greek army, who have not wanted to accept any suggestions as to how they could improve the distribution of food. The residents tend to go in their various groups. We saw people from Afghanistan, which was probably the major population, but also from the Congo, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and other countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa. A lot of them would make it to the camp by walking for days or weeks. In Turkey, they had to cross a mountain pass, and some of the refugees would tell me how during the winter they only had sandals and they were going through snow and how some of them felt that they couldn't make it. And if it was not for some wonderful Good Samaritans who would go and literally pick them up and take them over the pass, they would have died on the way. Many of them were young people and women gave birth along the trek that they made to the Turkish seacoast. Often they were stopped in Turkey, and I don't know about the countries they came from, how easy it was to leave, but once they left the country and they got to Turkey, they could be stopped by the local police or the military, and everything they had basically was taken from them, including medication, which, of course, for me, played a major concern. Once they got to the seacoast, they had to raise enough money to pay a smuggler. They would often buy a life jacket and not realize that the life jacket was stuffed with cardboard and was totally useless. The last statistic I heard when I was there, and that was just this past February, so it's recent, was that over a 1,000 people have drowned this past year when they have fallen out of their boat, couldn't swim, and had no life preserver, really. Once they made it across, and one other obstacle, the EU does not want to have refugees, much less our southern border. They will not physically harm a refugee, but they, the refugees are in boats of 40 to 50 in a raft, basically open to the elements. And large military vessels will try and deter them from coming across by driving around the rafts, creating waves, which makes it unfavorable to go forward. When they were actually on the shore, the refugees felt that they would have somebody to drive them across. But once they all got there, they would be told, oh, no, that driver couldn't make it. So one of you is going to have to do it. Many of these people had never been in a boat. Many of these people had no idea what to do. But when they didn't volunteer, guns came out and somebody suddenly volunteered, was given the two-minute lesson in how to pilot the boat, and off they went. When they got to the Greek side, there were people there who were watching from various NGOs to try and help them come into the shore. There's a very well-known place where all the life jackets were thrown, and it's a very sad memorial to the 
people who died and to what these folks have gone through. Once they got on the island, we were the major camp. There was another smaller camp, but they couldn't come to that, so they transferred to our camp. What was supposed to happen was they were supposed to be processed immediately, both for identity and for physical problems. Tuberculosis, other contagious disease would often be brought into the camp. But there were so many people, some days over a thousand people would come. They had one doctor doing this processing, so clearly it wouldn't take place. And they would not let the volunteer physicians do it. It was, had to be a Greek physician. So the people were then put into a large tent where they slept for the first little bit, and then they were divided into various groups. Single youth, less than 16, would be put in their own area. These are people where when they were leaving whichever country, when people were chasing after them with guns, families would separate, running various ways, and the young people would make it themselves to the island and to the camp. They were in one area. Women with children were in a separate area. They did not separate children from the parents. They, they wanted the parents and the children together. Vulnerable people with some major physical problems were also kept separately. After that, you had the general population, which were families with children, which did not need protection, single men, and they were in the camp. They lived in tents. They had no heat, and when I was there, the temperature at night was going down to the 40s or high 30s. It was raining with a driving rain, and they had, other than the tent, no protection against the elements. There was running water. There was electricity inside the camp. For the people who set up outside the camp when the camp was physically full, they just had a tent and no electricity, no running water. And you could see them, although they did not want to be photographed, carrying buckets of water up to where they were, or doing their washing outside in a bucket. They had our facility. When you walked into the camp physically, you would walk up, oh, 50 or 60 yards, and the group that I was with had a medical facility. We were approved by the Greek government. There were only two groups, one called Kitrinus, which is a British NGO, and the other called Med Global, which is an American NGO. They worked together, and they were the only approved groups. There were other groups of physicians who wanted to help, but if they saw a patient that needed an X-ray, a prescription, a lab test, they would have to refer them to us because we could only write that, that the hospitals would carry out what was necessary or the pharmacy would give them the prescriptions. They would give the prescriptions? They didn't have to pay for them? They did. After they came and they were processed, not medically, but with who they were, they got a discount card. And the card allowed them to buy the prescriptions for one-tenth of the price. So if it was 100-euro prescription, it cost them 10 euro. Once they were processed, they were given 60 euro per month to live on, in addition to the, having the food and accommodations provided for them. So this is how they could buy the medication. We had many medications that we gave to the patients, but we were restricted in number. So somebody came to us who had osteoarthritis, a 70-year-old gentleman who had walked across Turkey, and we were allowed to give him 10 Tylenol, total number of pills, or 20 ibuprofen, 200, for their pain management or their arthritis management. That was the total. And you know how fast those are gone. And yes, they could keep coming back, but they would have to wait three, four hours sometimes to be seen. At any one time, we had three to four physicians seeing patients in a very crowded area 
We had two exam rooms and two physicians in each room. It took a long time because we had to go through translators. Exactly. The language barrier must have been quite a challenge. It was a challenge. The translators were wonderful, fortunately. The translators were all refugees. They were folk. The refugees were often well-educated, had had good jobs at home, but was not safe for them to live in their country. And they knew that they were at risk. Some people had participated in a demonstration and were marked by the government. Other people, I don't know what they did that the government didn't like them, but they knew they had to leave their country. So we had translators who were fluent in Arabic, in Farsi, in the other languages, in French for the people from the Congo. And so we had good translators. The difficulty for the translators, and they were paid a little stipend, which was wonderful, was the fact that these folks, tremendous PTSD. Yes. So the translators, day in and day out, as they're translating their problems, are often reliving what they went through because they heard our patients tell us what happened to them, even though we didn't solicit it. Obviously, it would refresh in their mind for the translators what they'd gone through. So it was very emotionally challenging. And the group that I was with spent a lot of time trying to help the translator on their own emotional stability. Just outside the camp was Doctors Without Borders, and they were physically across the street, and they did pediatrics and gynecology, except for two days a week when they were closed for their breaks. And our group, which operated six days a week, and another group, which did seven days a week in the evenings, are picked up for when Doctors Without Borders were not seeing patients. The descriptions that you just gave, the images in my mind, it just started with people being thrown off a boat and drowning and just the enormous impact of families losing people in the process of just getting to a refugee camp. The lingering emotional leftovers, for lack of another word, that's maybe not even strong enough. And now the PTSD that you talk about must have been just horrific individually and, and as a group. Was there anger amongst the people that this happened to them, or were they pretty stoic about it all, despite the fact that it wasn't pleasant at all, obviously? It varied. To get to the camp, just one or two stories. I had a 19-year-old mother of a 18-month child whose husband had died on their track out of Afghanistan to Turkey. So now she had an 18-month-old that she was responsible for. And she comes across and says she's suicidal and had tried three times, fortunately not successful, and could not commit to safety that she would contact or come back to us and there was always somebody available for her before she tried again. She had no relatives in the camp. She had no friends in the camp. And she would, therefore, if she was successful, would leave an 18-month orphan in this refugee camp. Other people were shot at by the military and came with their gun wounds. Some of them became infected. There were people who had to drink bad water and they came with parasites, tuberculosis. I must have picked up 20 cases at a minimum of TB in the month I was there. And I knew they were positive because we were able to plant a TB test. And once we got TB, we could treat them or have them treated, but they would come back and we would see the positive test. So they had suffered on the trip, not only till they got to the Turkish shore, but across the way. And some of them were really angry. But most of the people for us, when they dealt with us, knew that we were there to help them. The anger was not directed at us. But 
we could not treat chronic diseases. So if you needed a new hip because you had bone on bone, and every time you walked you were in pain, you would have to wait until you got off the island to Athens or wherever you were going to go next and saw physicians. So you're talking two, three years maybe before you could have it addressed. If you needed your gallbladder removed, you were told to be very careful what you ate because we couldn't take it out, or, or not we couldn't. In the city of Medellini where there was a hospital, it wouldn't come out. And unfortunately, the doctors in Medellini did not like the refugee and made no show of hiding their feelings. So the wait to see a surgeon, unless you were almost dying, was months. The wait to see a neurologist, you had active seizures, was months. The wait to see a psychiatrist, if actively suicidal, could be weeks. And you couldn't really speed up the process. If you sent somebody to the hospital and they said they were actively suicidal, the hospital would say, okay, we'll set you up with a psychiatrist. We'll get in touch with you. Thank you. Goodbye. What about insulin-dependent diabetic? Didn't have it. We had metformin. Better than nothing. For chronic illness, we had very few medicines. We had antihypertensives. We had diuretic. We had metformin and one or two other agents. And that, uh, we had antibiotics. That was not a problem. There were a lot of antibiotics. Most of this was donated medication from companies, from NGOs, from various groups. And non-steroidals, which I mentioned before, the ibuprofen, we could purchase. And that was cheap. So I gave 80 euros to the administrator of the clinic so they could go out to town and buy stuff. There were pharmacies in Mytilene. And of the 60 euro, if somebody wanted to buy medication, they would do it. And sometimes they could get some of the medication they needed. But there was an additional problem. The Greek government said that I could not write seizure meds nor psychiatric meds, which meant that somebody who had, had active seizure disorder with epilepsy had their medicines taken from them when they were in Turkey, came to the camp and were having seizures, would not be seen by a neurologist for months with somebody who had been on the SSRIs or one of the other antidepressants or an antipsychotic had to wait many months, except if they wanted to take, once they got their 60-year-old, 40 of it, and pay a psychiatrist for a visit. So two-thirds of their monthly income would go to the psychiatrist who would give them enough medicine for one month. So they would have to go back the next month and spend again two-thirds. Well, since the food was so bad, a lot of the people used that money to be able to buy not moldy food, which sometimes they got, and it became very difficult. What about the, the older age group? Now, I would assume that, sadly, many of them were unable to make the trek to the refugee camp just because of age, although you did talk about the 70-year-old gentleman with arthritis. But it's amazing. I don't know how these people made it, often with the assistance of families that we saw. I think the oldest person I saw was 80, but most of them were between the adults, 40 and 60, 65. Some of these folks, with assistance from family or friends, they hobbled across. Amazing. If it wasn't that, they'd be killed. They died, so they took the risk. It speaks to the humanity of what you folks 
did. It also speaks so much to, how shall I say this, so many of the political and social realities of the world in which we live. I congratulate you and the other medical people who went and did your best to be humanitarian, and I, I just think it's great. I wish we had more time. Dr. Paul Hart just took us on a tour of the inside of a refugee camp. We never had this opportunity to see, and, and uh, it's painful to hear about some of it, sir. Thank you so much, and perhaps in the future we can do some more on this. It was intriguing in a very disturbing manner. Sir, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, and it would be my pleasure if you wanted me back.